Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We are, of course, continuing with our coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. This afternoon, a grim new milestone for the United States, where we have now surpassed 200 coronavirus deaths. It is now up to 208 this minute, with nearly 16,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, a number that in reality is assuredly much higher because of the lag in testing President Trump this afternoon saying he has kicked off the Defense Production Act, kicked it into gear to ramp up the manufacture and production of critical supplies. The president saying he actually invoked this act yesterday, though at the time he had said he would only invoke it in a worst-case scenario. The president's message on this has been confusing even to his own Pentagon. Governors are taking the lead where the federal government is currently not, with many top health officials privately pushing for all Americans to stay home so as to flatten the curve and reduce the expected surge in hospitals. Governors Newsom of California and Cuomo of New York are now mandating that their citizens, with a few exceptions, stay home. That is nearly one in five Americans told to stay home. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease physician, says this new reality of staying at home and social distancing will continue for at least several weeks. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us now. And Caitlin, President Trump praised the restrictions put in place in New York and California. And as I mentioned, privately health care experts say this really should be done nationally to be effective. Is there any consideration being given to ordering a national stay-at-home uh, mandate? Well, Jake, when you ask White House officials on this task force, they say nothing is off the table. But the president today seemed to tamp down any kind of expectation that a national-style lockdown could be happening anytime soon, saying he doesn't feel like it's necessary in other parts of the country, like the governors of New York and California have decided it is there. Mr. Trump uh, also said he kicked the Defense Production Act into gear today. Uh, so, so, so what does that mean? Are, are American companies actually being told they need to make masks, make ventilators right now? Well, this is the confusion because the president said he actually did so last night. That was, of course, after Senator Schumer said he urged the president today to do so. But yesterday before that, the president had said he didn't feel like it was necessary at this time. He didn't feel like he needed to pull the trigger. And of course, the confusion over today is whether he's actually directed these companies to do so, because that is what the act does. It's directing private companies to speed up production here. And the president didn't provide a list of companies that he said he's done this before. He then later said they're voluntarily doing it, which seems to go completely against him saying that he's actually gone with this. And the confusion over this is important because it determines whether states need to need to know that they need to continue to be bidding on ventilators, masks and things of that nature that they say they're not getting. And the president in his power with this has the authority to speed this up to solve this problem that so many states say they're having. And Caitlin, uh, the president's uh, leadership uh, during this crisis will be judged, I'm sure, at some point uh, for what it is. Um, and one of the things that happened today is Peter Alexander from uh, NBC News, which, by the way, just lost an employee to coronavirus. Peter, Peter Alexander basically 
threw the president a, a, an underhand softball, just basically, what's your message to Americans who are scared? And there are a lot of Americans who are scared. He, he responded by attacking him. Uh, then you uh, asked the president about that directly. Yeah, it seemed to be a pretty benign question. Just what is your message to people who've had their lives disrupted on a daily basis? And the president was clearly not happy with it. And so then I asked the president, you know, does he really feel like it's inappropriate or appropriate to be speaking to a reporter like that going off on a network while we're going through a pandemic? Do you really think, you know, going off on Peter, going off on a network is appropriate when the country is going through something like I this? I do, because I think uh, Peter is... Uh, you know, I've dealt with Peter for a long time. And I think Peter is uh, not a good journalist when it comes to fairness. But he's asking for your message to the country. Oh, I think it's a good message. So the president there defending his actions. We should note, Jake, just moments later, the same reporter asked the vice president the exact same question. He responded much differently, instead telling Americans to be vigilant and did not offer any criticism of the media. Yeah, I mean, what's odd about it, obviously, Caitlin, is that even if it had been a tough question, it's not appropriate for the president to respond like that. But that was the easiest question in the world. Assure the public that everything is okay and that we're going to get through this, Mr. President. Yeah, and you could see the looks on the faces of the people standing next to the president. You know, he's got two scientists up there, Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci standing with him, this Health and Human Services Secretary. And it's just been this jarring moment because the president has been at these briefings every single day this week. And each day you've seen him become a little bit more confrontational with reporters. And of course, this is the president's style. He is not going to change. If you talk to people close to him, they will tell you that. But it was really striking to see it on display for such a simple question during a time that we're going through like this one. All right. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has now ordered 100 percent of non-essential workers in New York state to stay home, obviously in an effort to try to slow the spread of coronavirus to avoid a surge in hospitals. CNN's Shimon Prokopis is live for us in New York City. And, and Shimon, I know Governor Cuomo said that journalists do count as essential workers because we are conveying information of what's going on, health information to the public. Who else are considered essential workers that, that are not told to stay at home? So it's the nurses, of course, that is probably, it's the frontline people, the most important people uh, that we are all going to look to uh, as things escalate here. Uh, the nurses, doctors, medics, the emergency medical technicians that are going to be responding uh, to calls. It's the police officers. And it's even your local shopping market, your store, the clerks, uh, pharmacies and the pharmacists and the clerks who work uh, in those places. These are the people uh, that he's saying should report to work if they can. These are the people that we're going to need as this progresses. Uh, and really, the other thing here that the governor is saying is that they're offering a premium on anyone who can make, who can manufacture these protective gears, these goods that nurses and medical staff need right now. There is a shortage, and they realize it, and they're asking anyone who can manufacture these items to do so. And here is how the governor explained what they need. If you are a business that doesn't manufacture these exact items, but if you have equipment and personnel and you believe that you could manufacture these items, they're not complicated. A mask is not a complicated item to make. Uh, a PPE gown is not a complicated item. Gloves, nitrile gloves are not a complicated item. If you can make them, we will give you funding to do it. 
And so that's what it, what we have here now, Jake. The governor saying we're offering money, a premium at a premium price uh, for these goods. They really need these items, uh, and that is what the focus on. It's the ventilators. It's making sure that the doctors and the nurses have the gear, have the equipment as this progresses, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes in New York City, thanks so much. Those stricter measures in New York come just hours after California became the first state in the country to issue mandatory restrictions over the coronavirus and order its 40 million residents to stay at home. CNN's Kyung La is live for us in Los Angeles. Uh, and Kyung, what are the exceptions here? And do Californians seem to be abiding by these new rules? Well, let's start there on who is abiding by these rules. Largely what we have seen in these first hours, these first 12 hours of Governor Newsom's stay-at-home rule, it certainly appears to be the case. You can see that there's one group of people over there, but generally every single retail shop on this block, everywhere that we have been has been completely closed. The exceptions have been, as we just heard from Shimon, very similar here in California, hospitals, banks, and restaurants where you can take out the food. You can see this one says open 9 a.m. This is Swart Coffee Shop in Los Angeles. And the owner here, Patricia Vagno, says that uh, she's complying with the rules. She is making sure that no one is able to sit here in the dining room, but people are going to be able to come in, grab their coffee and leave. That is something that is allowed under the governor's order. So why did this come about? Well, Governor Newsom says he simply did the math. And when he did that, if you look at where the infection rates are happening in the state and the rate of it, In eight weeks, the governor was estimating that more than half of the residents in the state would be infected with the coronavirus. And I also want to refer, Jake, to something um, that Caitlin was talking about, the question that uh, she and Peter Alexander asked the president about fear. Uh, That actually hits home right here. Uh, Patricia says that her employees here are scared. She's also scared. She wants to help flatten the curve. So she is going to close. Even though she doesn't have to completely close, she's going to do that. And what we found here is that she's selling off all her supplies. It's essentially a fire sale by this small business so that she can comply with the government and close and try to help flatten the curve, Jake. All right. Well, while we're talking about uh, the personal note there of fear expressed by the the woman you spoke with, uh, we've been hearing about Uh, these horrific instances of uh, anti-Asian discrimination, racism, xenophobia because of the coronavirus, because it originated in China. Um, And you and I talked about this. You said it was okay for me to bring it up. You had an unsettling encounter today while out reporting on this story. Yeah, I don't think... I think it's been since elementary school that I haven't heard it directly to my face. It's something that you see on social media frequently, um, especially if you're an Asian American reporting on controversial or even non-controversial news items. Uh, And so we were standing there preparing for live shots this morning, just hours ago, and a man walked up and used a racial slur, slung it right at me. And I was so surprised and so taken aback that I asked him to repeat it because I couldn't believe it. Uh, So it is something that is happening. And what I find most surprising is that it's happening in front of our faces, uh, directly at people. That is something that I have not experienced in a very, very long time in this country. Well, I'm so sorry you experienced that. Um, And I would just like to note that if you are stupid and racist enough to be holding random individuals of Asian descent responsible for a pandemic, then you should be self-quarantining from society anyway. Uh, so that's what I have to say to that idiot. Uh, Kyung La, thank you so much for your excellent reporting, as always. Coming up next, retired doctors and nurses now being asked to return to work if they can, as hospitals prepare for the worst. And ahead, 
the governor of one state who has seen cases rise almost 400% in just the last two days. What is she going to do? Stay with us. Today, there are no proven safe and effective therapies for the coronavirus. That doesn't mean that we're not going to do everything we can to make things that have even a hint of efficacy more readily available. But there's no magic drug out there right now. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, bluntly stating the status of a vaccine or treatment for the coronavirus. This, as President Trump continues to exaggerate, optimistically sell, however you want to describe it, the potential of narcotics available to treat coronavirus. Joining me now, CNN medical analyst, Dr. Celine Gounder, a clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at NYU Bellevue. Uh, Dr. Gounder, the anti-malaria drug that President Trump says would be made available almost immediately, it, it, we're a long way from there. It still needs to be approved by the FDA. They say that could take months. They need to do clinical trials. They need to make sure that there aren't any uh, side effects. Do you have any concerns about this particular drug? How optimistic should the nation be? Well, chloroquine is known to have some serious side effects. Uh, There is another study that came out of France very recently looking at hydroxychloroquine, which is a related drug in combination with a common antibiotic that also is very promising, but it was only about 20 patients. So that that doesn't really give you adequate information on safety or effectiveness. I do think what we will see happening is people like me, doctors who are working in the hospital, we will be prescribing some of these drugs. Uh, when they're available, and probably trying as much as possible to get patients enrolled into these clinical trials to see if these things work. But there's this is not a slam dunk. This is early, promising research, but that doesn't mean this is going to work. During last night's town hall, Dr. Fauci said that the National Institutes of Health is launching a trial of coronavirus treatment using antibodies from patients who have recovered. What might we be able to learn from recovered patients? Well, we've done this with other uh, illnesses as well. During Ebola, there was a drug called ZMAP that we tried. Turned out not to be tremendously effective. Um, We have used this with other infections like uh, chickenpox or hepatitis B. Um, And so there is a role for this, but you're still then waiting for somebody to get sick. And when you try to rescue them with a drug like that, there's no guarantee that it's going to work. If someone has recovered from coronavirus, are they able to get reinfected or is it like chickenpox, like you can only get it once? Yeah, so there's been a lot of confusion about that. Um, we think, at least based on what we know about all the other coronaviruses, that if you are infected with COVID-19, you will be immune to COVID-19 thereafter, at least for one to three years. So at least during this wave, you should not be able to be reinfected. Now, that said, Uh, relapse is a possibility. So in other words, you're infected, you start to get better, and then you get worse again. So that may be some of what we're seeing. Um, And then as the virus evolves over time, say in three years time, you know, it may change enough that your immunity is not as robust as it was initially. Mayor de Blasio of New York City, where you are, says the federal government has two weeks to get New York City the medical supplies they need, or they will be in, quote, much greater danger He's asking for 3 million masks. Those are the special N95 masks that provide respiratory protection. 50 million surgical masks, which provide less uh, protection. 1,500 ventilators, which do breathing for patients. Plus, of course, gowns, gloves, face shields, other uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. 
Is that a conservative number, a liberal number? Like, do you think that that's about right? What else might be needed beyond those uh, those items? I mean, I think we're going to need even more than that. And I I am really concerned that that's not going to arrive in time. We already have hospitals that have run out of N95 masks here in New York City. I have colleagues who are using plain surgical masks, which are really not intended to protect you against getting coronavirus. They're really meant for putting on sick patients so that they don't infect you. So they trap their sneezes and coughs inside the mask. Uh, I have friends who are ordering doctor friends who are ordering bandanas on Amazon for their team because the CDC is saying, well, that might be all you, you know, is available to you. So stock up on bandanas and scarves. And that's, I I find that really unfair when I know that there are people who have stocks of N95 masks at home, businesses who have, uh, have hordes of them as well. And we're the ones going out on the front lines. We don't have the option to stay home and take care of patients from home. We're the ones putting ourselves at risk and we're being told, well, wear a bandana. Well, Dr. Gardner, who has stockpiles of N95 masks that they're not giving up? I heard about today a bunch of Hollywood studios uh, like Grey's Anatomy giving everything they have to local hospitals. Obviously, anyone who has anything should follow suit. Who are you talking about? Construction companies? Who? Uh, I would hesitate to say exactly and point fingers. I would say um, there are some. It looks like uh, our feed with Dr. Gardner went out. That's one of the repercussions uh, of doing everything remotely, which we are trying to do in this day and age of the pandemic. Dr. Celine Gounder, thank you so much. Um, Up next, I'm going to talk to one of the nation's governors who had the chance to tell President Trump exactly what she and her state needs as cases in that state surge. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Coronavirus cases are spiking nationwide, including in the state of Michigan, where the numbers have shot up more than 400 percent in 48 hours to at least 549 confirmed cases. Joining me now is Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Governor, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, President Trump uh, praised the effort of federal government uh, officials getting states necessary supplies. I guess my first question is, do you have everything you need from the federal government? Do you have the masks, the ventilators, anything you need to fight this virus? No, we don't. Of course, Michigan's not alone. You were just talking to a doctor in New York. I mean, we know that across the country, governors are scrambling to try to meet the need of our people. I don't think that the federal government uh, did the work on the front end to prepare. And now we are really scrambling. We've got, of course, you you mentioned how um, the increase has gone up so dramatically. And yet we know that there is a lot more coronavirus present across the country and, of course, in my state as well, because we're just not able to test everyone that we should be. We need tests. We need personal protection equipment. We need resources. We need regular, sustained, national, strategic plan here and solid, clear communication. And I think these are all the, the important pieces that are missing from the federal government that we governors are trying to step up and and meet that need. The president said yesterday when asked about this cry from the governors that governors are supposed to be doing this work. And he said uh, something along the lines of we're, we in the federal government, we're not a shipping clerk. What was your response? 
You know, I, it's, I'm just frustrated. I don't want to be in a sparring match with the federal government. But I can tell you this. We are behind the eight ball because they didn't do proper planning. And now we are trying to work across state, you know, uh, across states to make sure that we're pulling in the private sector to step up and, and manufacture masks and personal protection equipment. I think that, you know, the governors have really done um, some aggressive smart things driven by science and facts and always what are in the best interest of our people. But every one of these decisions weighs heavily on us all because there are ramifications when you close schools. You know, in my state, we have 1.5 million kids in schools. That means half of them, 750,000, are going without meals because they're not in the classroom. So we've got to make, um, you know, provisions to ensure that our kids are getting fed. When we close bars and restaurants, those have ramifications in terms of people being out of work and not being able to pay their bills. And so each of these aggressive, necessary steps weighs heavy on all of us, but we're doing the best we can with the best science available to us. And we need additional support out of the federal government to be sure. So, Governor, top health officials are privately saying that they think that the stay-at-home orders that California and New York, Governors Newsom and Cuomo have ordered, really should be national. Um, Cases in your state nearly doubled overnight. The number is expected to grow. You know what the rate is. It's doubling roughly somewhere between two and three days. Um, I'm sure if I put sodium pentothal in Governor Newsom and Governor Cuomo and said, do you wish that you had done the stay-at-home knowing now? Knowing then what you know now, do you wish you'd done it two weeks ago? I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they would say yes. Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't all the other governors doing that? I think every one of us is trying to share our best uh, medical information and make decisions that are in the best interest of public health. You know, it would be um, helpful if from the federal level, I've got a great deal of confidence in Dr. Fauci, but if they would communicate with us, you know, clearly um, give us guidance about what the best practice would be. To have a hodgepodge um, of policies across the nation really isn't the wisest way to go. Now, that being said, absent that happening from the federal government, we're going to continue to move forward and be aggressive. One of the um, we're communicating regularly with New York and California to understand their thought process and see if that's something that we need to do here in Michigan. We have been on the front edge of being aggressive and we're going to continue to be. And we're always um, mindful of, of how important it is to be swift about it as well. So we're looking at, at all of these developments. The information is changing but literally by the minute. And um, I would anticipate additional orders coming out of my office and um, in the, the minutes, hours and days ahead. Do you, you don't have enough tests, right? Have you seen any market improvement in the number of tests or the number of labs able to conduct these tests in the last week? You know, I'm it's my understanding that we've got more tests coming in and I'm grateful for that. But nowhere near the amount that we would actually like to be um, able to execute. The fact of the matter is without people to run the tests and labs to report the tests and, and, and give us the results of them and then additional supplies and people online in our medical communities, we're we're seriously in danger of getting overwhelmed nationally and globally and obviously as a state, too. So these are um, concerns that we have. We know that COVID-19 is present in much greater numbers than what the test will tell you because we're under testing. And that's why it's really critical that every one of us takes it serious. Every one of us does our part. That means these stay-at-home um, you know, practices and the six 
you know, uh, foot perimeter and ensuring that you're not um, out in public when you when you don't need to be. These are really important. And when I see videos of, of people congregating, you're just endangering the public and you're, you know, creating much more um, long term problem for our economy. And that's why everyone's really got to do their part and take this seriously. Governor, you've asked President Trump to activate the National Guard in Michigan to help with the response. What what role do you want the Guard to play? Well, you know, our, our Guards people are trained. They are trained professionals. They are, um, you know, steeped in logistics. If um, every governor from the around the country has asked for the same authority that the the, you know, federal government give us access to the logistics, but they're under our command in each state. We can put guardsmen to work in terms of making sure that our veterans' needs are being served, in terms of ensuring that communities have access to fundamentals, to everything from food delivery to ensuring that um, as products become available in terms of those PPEs that I was talking about, that they get to their destination. To supplement the work that we're doing at the state, where we desperately need more bodies who are trained, who are able to um, help us amplify what we're already doing. Governor Whitmer, Democrat of Michigan, we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much and stay in touch. Let us know what you need. Will do. Thanks, Jake. Okay. Coming up, a grim new prediction about unemployment in America as the federal government makes an unprecedented move to try to ease the economic pain. Stay with us. A frightening prediction as more businesses lay off workers and close doors as a result of coronavirus. Economists at Goldman Sachs estimate more than 2 million people will file for unemployment this week. That's eight times higher than last week. And in a drastic sign of the times, the Trump administration moved the IRS tax deadline from April 15th to July 15th. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. The next official unemployment report comes out next week. How realistic is the prediction from Goldman Sachs? Two and a half million unemployment? You're using all the right words. It's drastic and it's pretty terrifying, Jake, but everybody's scrambling to get a sense of what's going on. Remember, the entire country is purposely being brought to a halt here and people told to stay at home. The key point is that most people work in small and medium-sized enterprises in this country. 27 million people are right on the front lines. Restaurants, bars, tourism those kind of sectors. And these jobs disappear overnight. We are fighting a health crisis, but we're creating an economic crisis. And now we have a jobs crisis overnight. So the Trump administration is asking states to hold off on releasing early unemployment numbers and to only put out their figures for official reports. Do you think that's to avoid confusion, to avoid panic, to stave off bad news? Why would they make that request? I'm sure some part of it is logistics, quite simply processing all of these. I also think it will also create panic, Jake, but we need to be panicking here. I think Congress needs to be panicking. The critical problem in the United States, there's no back support here. There's no backstop. These people won't have health care. They're living paycheck to paycheck. We have to stop the mass unemployment that's going to build over the coming months. I don't know what to say, but it's the most vulnerable people at this stage that are going to get crushed very, very quickly. Another startling prediction from Goldman Sachs. Um, Look at U.S. economic growth forecast from last week. Last week, they predicted the first quarter uh, it would be zero percent. And then for the second quarter, they predicted it would be negative five percent. This week, uh, Goldman Sachs uh, uh, has a much harsher uh, prediction. They're saying uh, uh, negative six percent for the first quarter and negative 24 percent for the second quarter. 
if, if the United States actually goes through a, a contraction uh, that negative 24% growth in the second quarter, what does that mean? What does that look like? We are looking at something that we've never seen before in record speed, mass unemployment at this stage. I mean, these numbers are drastic, but businesses are grinding to a halt. You know, I look around the world at how other countries are responding to this because every country basically in the world is going through the same things. And Jake, they're cutting checks. They're writing blank checks. The UK said it would backstop 80 percent of salaries today. And this is the kind of spending and support that's required. Congress really need to understand that we need a two to three month economic financial hole fill. Otherwise, we're facing depression style numbers here. Julia, you're our business anchor. What's the fix here? What does the U.S. need to do? What what do the President Trump and Congress need to do? It's a great question. We need to protect people for the next two to three months. Like I say, we need to fill that financial gap. So people should not be worrying about paying utility bills, about paying mortgages. That's something that we've fixed. They only need to be spending money, I think, on food and health care. So in the same way that the economy is freezing here, we need to freeze people's outgoings. I know it sounds extreme, but look at states like New Hampshire. This governor gets it. He's doing that. We started to see today Governor Cuomo saying, look, no foreclosures for the next 90 days. We need this on a national scale. And you simply, as a government, have to throw money at it. I'm talking four, five trillion dollars. Forget 2020, Jake, forget politics here. Congress has to unite to come up with big picture plans or we are facing real problems in the next two to three months. All right, Julia Chatterley, thank you so much for that grim discussion. No, I appreciate the honesty. You have to be real. No, that's what we need, exactly. Coming up stuck at home and stressed, we'll talk to an expert about the fear and anxiety many are feeling right now. How to manage it all. That's next. As we end the first week of social distancing, uh, it's important to note the emotional and mental toll this can take on all of us. And while this is all in an effort to keep Americans healthy and stop the spread of coronavirus, many Americans are understandably feeling scared and anxious, not just Americans, obviously, around the world. Uh, joining me now is Andrea Bonnier, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Georgetown uh, University. Um, so what are some things people can do to, to manage their anxiety? Yeah, it's such a hard time for so many of us. And the first step is to think about a sense of predictability, a sense of routine. We know that that lowers the stress response. And so even finding small plans throughout the day that can stay consistent from one day to the next can be really, really helpful. Watching your sleep is so important. It's under threat right now because we're so anxious. But then it's a double whammy when we don't get good sleep. We're more hypersensitive to threat, so we know that we feel worse. Fresh air when it's safe to do so, even small bits of sunlight can be very helpful. And of course, a big part is, you know, keeping your brain active without going to catastrophizing mode. So setting limits on when you start spiraling, observing your thoughts, you know, okay, am I finding information here that helps me feel more in control? Is it gaining me insight or Am I kind of getting wrapped around this and starting to cycle into a really dark place and I need to take a step back and I need to reset and get a little change of scenery even within my own house? Of course, the biggest thing of all right now, too, is probably to make sure that the social distancing isn't turning into total social isolation. 
because we know that has very serious mental health effects, especially for people who feel particularly cut off from loved ones right now. So how do people deal with that if they're feeling isolated and alone? Because, to be honest, they're isolated and alone. Uh, what should they be doing to, to, to help um, alleviate that? Yeah, you know, it's been heartening to see people are really getting creative, you know, having virtual happy hours, cooking with each other over FaceTime, like let's cook dinner together, um, you know, watching movies together, saying, hey, let's have breakfast together, playing their instruments for each other or reading the same book together and talking about it on the phone. Ironically, I think one positive, you know, bright spot within this larger horror is that people are having to find ways to come together. And because so many people are trapped at home, it almost gives them more motivation to say, hey, I really need something here and I'm going to make it happen. Of course, not all of us can do that. It depends on our technology. Um, but really even, you know, reaching out to a neighbor via an old fashioned phone call can be really helpful right now. I also think it's important that people just acknowledge this sucks. This is really awful. Mm -hmm. It's it's totally okay yeah. to be upset and emotional and freaking out at home. I mean, we are mm -hmm. going to get through it. The, the world will, the United States will, but it's it's tough and and we don't have to pretend that it's mm -hmm. not. Yes, yes, that's such a good point. I think accepting that some anxiety right now is very normal. Our circumstances are anything but normal, but our anxious reaction to that can be very normal. Can we harness that? Can we manage that? Can we observe ourselves and try to find pockets of the day where we sit and we breathe and we say, this is really hard. Is there a part of this that, you know, I will remember in a way as, as helping me grow? I know that sounds sort of ridiculous when we're so anxious, but thinking about how we can look back on this and be the people that we want to be in these moments can be really powerful. Is, Nietzsche once said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Is, is that true? I mean, obviously some people are going to leave this era um, physically harmed, but in terms of your expertise, are there long-term mental health effects that we should be concerned about? Honestly, I do worry about that. I think whenever we talk, we talk about long-term economic crises, we're also talking about the potential for a parallel process in psychological crises. We do see anxiety and depression rates rise when poverty rises, when isolation and unemployment increase. We see ripple effects with substance abuse. I know I'm very concerned and many other mental health professionals are that so goes the economy, so too goes our mental health. And I think for most of us, there's a baseline resilience there. But I really am concerned right now for folks struggling with anxiety and depression, because not only is this an anxiety producing situation that will raise their overall stress, but they might be cut off from their typical therapy appointments, or they might be in recovery and unable to go to their typical meetings or they might be in a difficult relationship that's somewhat controlling and now they're cooped up all day. So so I would love to think that we're all going to grow stronger from this. And it's very motivational to think about what we can gain from it. But I do worry that we really need to step up and, and add some resources to the folks who are most at risk from a mental health perspective right now. And obviously, there's the economic anxiety is very real. People are worried they're going to be laid off. People have been laid off. Business mm -hmm. owners are concerned they could lose everything. Uh, how to deal with on for, you have the health issue, the mental health issue. You have the fear that you're going to get sick. You have the fear that someone you love yeah. is going to get sick. And then there's the financial stresses of all this. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's so much. It's so much. And I would really hope that as the government is thinking about relief and ways to help, um, that they also can put their money where their mouth is in ways of, you know, resources or insurance companies stepping up and saying, okay, you can see your therapist uh, via via a video conferencing tool, and we will also cover that as we've covered the in-person sessions or state licensing boards saying, you know what, you're long distance right now, but it's okay. We've got reciprocity for whatever mental health license exists. I think these are tangible ways that the governments can step forward and say, hey, let's help because again, the mental health crisis is real and it's underlying this and we feel like we have more immediate things to talk about. But honestly, from the standpoint of survival, there's nothing more important than mental health. All right. Our 50 minutes is up, Andrea Bonnier. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Coming up, President Trump says there's a drug that could treat the coronavirus, but the nation's top infectious disease doctor does not sound as confident. We're going to talk to our own Dr. Sanjay Gupta in our daily talk about that and much more. But first, CNN Heroes takes a look at just some of the acts of kindness being carried out by people around the world during this horrific coronavirus crisis. At a time of social distancing, empathy and compassion are alive and well. Happy birthday to you. Around the world, people are coming up with creative ways to stay connected, to share resources, and to stay healthy. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We are continuing this hour with the coronavirus pandemic as our lead. 215 people in the U.S. have now died from the coronavirus with more than 16,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. And that number, of course, expected to grow as testing increases around the country. We are also watching the New York Stock Exchange on its last day of in-person trading, closing its trading floor temporarily, moving to fully electronic trading next week. The Dow Closing in a moment, it's down more than 800, oh, 900 points now as the pandemic continues to rattle the markets. This afternoon, President Trump said he does not think there needs to be a national lockdown, a national order for people to stay at home. But he did applaud the governors of New York and California for taking those measures, enacting new mandates for their residents to stay at home, meaning nearly one in five Americans are now under such an order. And stricter measures are also now expected tomorrow from New Jersey As New York Governor Andrew Cuomo put it, quote, we need everyone to be safe. Otherwise, no one can be safe. CNN's Erica Hill is live in New York City. And Erica, the health department there, asking healthcare workers to stop testing other healthcare workers and first responders without symptoms. Yeah, that's right. We're just getting some of this guidance that the uh, that the New York City Health Department sent to healthcare facilities here, saying, as you said, Jake, not to test asymptomatic healthcare workers and first responders. And the reason for that is they say they need to preserve that personal protective equipment. Mentioning a shortage of swabs as well as transport media and testing reagents. Again, that memo in all caps saying, "Do not test and asymptomatic and or exposed healthcare workers." This just one of the many new directives and restrictions we're seeing as this happens across the country. New promises from the White House. We have millions of masks which are coming and which will be distributed to the states. They will be here soon. We're having them shipped directly to states. Critical supplies now on the way. 
though the president was light on specifics. It's not clear when they'll arrive, nor where the White House is getting them. States, meantime, moving swiftly to try to contain the virus. It's time for all of us to recognize as individuals and as a community, we need to do more to meet this moment. California telling the state's 40 million residents to stay home. While they can go out for food, medical appointments, even a jog, officials are urging people to limit the excursions and the interaction. New York's governor going further, mandating all non-essential workers stay home starting Sunday night. We need everyone to be safe, otherwise no one can be safe. We've talked to people all across the globe about what they did, what they've done, what worked, what doesn't work, uh, and that has all informed this policy. The governor advising public transportation only if absolutely necessary. Any outdoor exercise must be done alone. Visits with loved ones discourage. The strictest rules will apply to the most vulnerable, those over 70, the immunocompromised, anyone with an underlying illness. The governor warning the new rules are not optional. If somebody wants to blame someone or complain about someone, uh, blame me. If everything we do saves just one life, I'll be happy. In Florida, some counties now closing beaches as the governor resists calls to do the same statewide. You either think it's a liberal conspiracy or that we're the jackbooted thugs trying to take control of everything. So, And the reality is that this is a science issue. As nurses and doctors are called out of retirement to help and new restrictions limit movement, the reality of this pandemic is becoming more clear. In New Jersey, one family has now lost four loved ones to coronavirus in a matter of days. Several more are in the hospital, 19 under quarantine. It is absolutely surreal. It's like the second we start to grieve about one, the phone rings and there is another person gone, taken from us forever. The heartbreak of one family, a sobering reminder that changing daily life could ultimately save it. And, you know, I just want to put on a couple of things here, too, Jake. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio yesterday talking about the numbers in this city, saying we need to not think of them as numbers, but as people. And remember, each number is connected to a family and ultimately to the community. To that end, the numbers obviously going up as the number of tests go up. Governor Cuomo saying that in New York alone, 10,000 tests were done overnight, more than 7,000 cases, of course, here now, Jake. All right, Erica Hill, thank you so much. As always, stay safe, please. Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, joins us now for our daily conversation. Um, Sanjay, always good to see you. Uh, President Trump continues to uh, give an optimistic look at this anti-malaria drug uh, that people are talking about as a potential treatment for coronavirus. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, however, uh, tempered expectations. Take a listen. Okay. Is there any evidence to suggest that, as with malaria, it might be used as a prophylaxis yeah. against COVID-19? No, the answer is, is no. And, and the, the evidence that you're talking about, John, is anecdotal evidence. The information that you're referring to specifically is anecdotal. It was not done in a controlled clinical trial, so you really can't make any definitive statement about it. Uh, we all understand what the doctor said is 100 percent correct. It's early. But uh, we've, uh, you know, I've seen things that are uh, impressive. We'll see. We're going to know soon. Look, we all want this medicine to work. Right. We all want it to be out as soon as possible. A, a president wanting to convey optimism is understandable. But, but what do you make of this? I mean, is this a false hope that the president's offering? 
Well, I think I think that's what Dr. Fauci was sort of, you know, saying. He was insinuating it at least. He's, he is he's got probably got the toughest job in America right now. You know, Dr. Fauci does. But look, yesterday uh, President Trump said this uh, this drug uh, was approved for coronavirus. It is not. Yesterday he said it could potentially be a game changer. Dr. Fauci said there's only anecdotal evidence around this. On one hand, you have someone who's, who's you know, trusts their gut instinct, but it's not science-based, it's not evidence-based instinct, and, and you, he's being fact-checked real-time, you know, by Dr. Anthony Fauci on the, at the lectern. I, I'd never seen anything quite like it. But, Jake, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, everybody wants to be hopeful. Everybody on the planet is looking for a therapeutic like this, but you've got to approach this in a scientific way so you find something that actually works. Yesterday, Sanjay, you and I were talking about the fact that Dr. Burks, the head of the coronavirus task force, had said that more than 50 percent of the cases came from only 10 counties right. in three states, Washington State, California, New York. And you and I were talking about whether or not they should tell everybody in those three states or in those uh, 10 counties, at the very least, to stay at home. Since that conversation, California and New York have done that. But you think it should be nationwide. Yeah, look, I mean, this is this is one of those things that we're sort of trickling along here. We get more numbers, more people who are diagnosed with this coronavirus, and that then starts to stimulate action. The problem is, and Jake, you and I have talked about this uh, many times, but obviously we're way behind on testing, and there's plenty of evidence that this virus is circulating much more widely than I think anybody realizes. If you are going to do these these actions that, that Governor Cuomo is talking about, Governor Newsom is talking about, they are most effective, Jake, if they are done early. I don't think you can stress this enough. If you wait too long, maybe they'll still have some impact, but not nearly as much, and that's a problem. It's got to be done early. It's got to be done consistently. People have to be honest about it, and they have to be diligent. But I, I just don't think there's a reason to wait. There's no trigger here. We know what's happening. People should act. I asked Governor Whitmer of Michigan, basically, shouldn't you be doing this? Like, yeah. you know, if you ask Governor Newsom or, or Governor Cuomo, if you could put sodium pentothal in them and said, don't you wish that you had done these? I don't want to uh, begrudge them. I, I'm glad that they're taking this, this yeah. step. But don't you wish you'd done it two weeks ago? Um, I feel like they probably would admit yes. But I mean, I'm just making that up. But, but it just seems like we are always dealing with what we think is the reality is actually like a week or two behind. Uh, th that's right. And, and the thing about it is that, you know, we we're, this isn't conjecture. Uh, we have evidence throughout history and we have evidence real time. We have evidence from other countries of how this can so potentially play out. And everyone says, look, we're at this inflection point. It's either going to go the way of Italy, which has been really sad what has happened over there, or possibly the way of South Korea, which has had more success. We keep saying that, Jake, but what are we really doing about it then to, to make us go in a better trajectory? I, th I feel like it's just still slow rolling this. I mean, I get that you don't want to shock the country, you don't want to shock the population, but some of these measures that go into place now for a shorter time will have a much more of an impact than, than these same measures for a much longer time later on. We got to do this. You know, I, I don't know what the metaphor is, ripping off the Band-Aid or whatever, but it has to be done, and I think everybody recognizes it. It's just become a question of how to how to get the country used to it at this point. Well, I think one of the issues, and it seems pretty obvious to me, Governor Whitmer, when I asked her about it, she said basically because it, it doesn't make sense for it to be a hodgepodge. And there is no one at the federal level, i.e. the president, saying we need to do this nationally. Although, if you like, kind of like read between the lines of everything Dr. Fauci says, yeah. it seems like he is really suggesting as much as he can publicly 
while, you know, not getting fired, that he would like it to be national. That's yeah. my interpretation. I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And, and he sort of said something to that effect, like, look, we're, we're, we're doing this. this. This sort of falls in line with our recommendations. The problem, Jake, as you and I know, is that without some sort of uh, more, more uh, significant guidance or something that's applied more broadly across the country, there are places that are still not taking this seriously. There are places that think, you know what, our numbers are low. We're okay. We're going to escape this whole thing. There are places that don't realize that a virus does not respect boundaries or borders. It's traveling wherever it wants to go. And, you know, no, no one is really necessarily protected. That's not to alarm people. That's to tell them to take action. And, and, and the action can, can make a big difference. Jake, you know, let me just show this again, this 1918 example, because every time I show this, I get emails. People find this illustrative in terms of what can happen if you actually take action. The big line, the big peak, Jake, you've seen this many times, Philadelphia. Yeah. They had a big parade during the 1918 flu pandemic. They didn't call off the parade. Uh, a lot of people got together and you saw a massive uh, influx of patients into the hospitals and many, many patients died. The dotted line is St. Louis. Same time period, Jake. Um, they practice social distancing, physical distancing, as we're calling it. And, and it made a huge difference. We, why don't we listen to the evidence here? It's going to hurt a lot of it. This is, nobody likes what's happening here. I get no joy in saying this at all. But if we do this, we can save ourselves a lot of pain and anguish later on. And, and just for people who maybe are tuning into CNN for the first time because of this and, and aren't familiar with either of us, like you're not an alarmist. I mean, you are the guy that says it's going to be OK for you to be sounding the alarm right now says a lot. And there's other, one other thing I want to say, because we, we get some we get some feedback um, that people don't like the the where is it? It's over here the coronavirus pandemic chart that we have up, which shows the number of cases worldwide and fatalities worldwide, as, as well as uh, in the United States. That number 215 you're looking at right now, fatalities, it was 208 about an hour ago. Uh, now it's 215. Why is it, why are we doing this? I mean, I know why, but tell our viewers, why are we showing people this graph? Look, th th this is, what, what is happening is serious. I think sometimes people just look at this sort of more broadly and they forget that there are real people uh, behind these numbers. These numbers are increasing. We can show you how fast they are increasing, all of that. But, you, you know, people do need to be reminded of this. I mean, even now, Jake, we're not even really in this yet. And I find that people are already uh, becoming complacent. People talking about what are they going to be doing this weekend, making plans and stuff like that. And again, I get no joy in telling people not to do this. I, I, I don't want to be that guy either. But um, we put those numbers up to remind people not to get complacent and to remind them that if we act now, those numbers don't have to skyrocket like Philadelphia or like other places around the world. It is still within our control some bit, somewhat. So, you know, Jake, whatever your program does to remind people of that, I think is really important. So people should see this. It's, it's, it's sad. It's not good. But we can still, you know, avoid uh, a, a much worse sort of fate here. The reference to Philadelphia, of course, reference to the 1918 right. pandemic, not what's going on right now. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. We'll have another yeah. conversation on Monday. I'll see you right here. President Trump says he's kicked the Defense Production Act into gear, but has anyone been asked to actually ramp up production? And ahead, the global toll. In Italy, more than 600 deaths in just 24 hours. Our CNN team is live on the ground around the world. Stay with us. 
Breaking news, Illinois Governor Jay Pritzker moments ago announced a stay-at-home order for residents of the entire state of Illinois. They had 163 cases of coronavirus announced just today. CNN's Ryan Young is in Chicago. Ryan, tell us more. Yeah, this just happened in the last seven minutes or so. I stepped out so we could have this conversation. You talked about those new 163 cases, but so many people will be impacted by this. In fact, the governor said he would rather make sure that people's lives are saved instead of businesses. And this has been a very tough decision. This order will start tomorrow at five o'clock and will run through April 7th. And just to give you an idea, they've already closed schools in the Chicago area to April 21st. But this guideline will be everyone shelter in place. The governor did make clear, though, that people will still be able to go to grocery stores. They'll be able to get gas. They'll be able to go to hiking. They'll be able to walk their dogs. So he was trying to make sure that everyone understood they, they would be able to go outside. But he thought the, the way to get rid of this curve in terms of all the people getting sick, this was the best way to do it. And if you think about it, in DuPage County, just outside the city, 46 more seniors have come down with COVID-19. So this is something they're definitely concentrating on. We'll continue to listen to this news conference and give you more information as it becomes available. Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Here in Washington at a time when Americans are looking for calm and truthful leadership at the top, President Trump held a contentious briefing with reporters today in which he refused to name specific companies that are producing the critical medical supplies under the Defense Production Act. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, Mr. Trump stepped up attacks on journalists, ones asking pertinent, legitimate, honest questions. I watched uh, what's been happening in California with Governor Newsom and uh, this morning with Governor Cuomo, and uh, I applaud them. Today, President Trump praised the major moves made by the governors of New York and California to keep people indoors, but said he's not considering a national lockdown of his own. You go out to the Midwest, you go out to other locations, and uh, they're watching it on television, but they don't have the same problems. They don't have, by, by any means, the same problem. The president says the U.S. and Mexico will close the southern border to all non-essential travel starting at midnight Saturday. Understand that there's a public health reason for doing that. Today, the president faced questions after he touted a potential treatment for coronavirus the day before that the FDA says has not been approved and is still being tested. It may work and it may not work. And I agree with the doctor what he said. May work, may not work. Uh, I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. One of the lead scientists on his task force offered a much more sobering analysis. The president feels optimistic about something, his feeling about it. What I'm saying is that it might, it might be effective. Hospitals say critical supplies are running low, but the confusion over whether they will get them isn't. Last night, we put it into gear. The president now says he is using the Defense Production Act to speed up the manufacturing of masks and other supplies. The states are having a hard time getting them. But moments later, he said he's not requiring companies to do so, which is what the act does, but claiming the companies are doing so voluntarily. This is important. You haven't actually directed any companies to start making more ventilators or masks. Right? I have. I have, yes. I have. How many companies? A lot. A lot. And they're making a lot of ventilators and they're making a lot of masks. The president did not offer a list of companies that have been compelled to speed up production under the Defense Production Act, like he claimed. In his fifth briefing this week, Trump also grew confrontational with reporters. You say the Americans were scared, though. I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. 
I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. Moments later, the vice president answered that same question from the same reporter much differently. I would say do not be afraid, be vigilant. Two very different styles there, Jake. You can see in how the president answered that and how the vice president answered it. I do want to note two things quickly that today the president also said federal student loan borrowers borrowers will not have to make their payments for the next 60 days. And he also said there is not going to be any more standardized testing for this school year. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. To those paying attention, the president's outburst is the latest evidence that he should possibly consider letting Vice President Pence and Dr. Fauci and the others leading the coronavirus task force at the White House take the helm at the daily press conferences. I don't want to eat up too much time in the show today discussing President Trump's behavior. We have too many life and death issues to discuss. But while President Trump should clearly be heralded for closing off flights from China early on and the government is currently working now on the pandemic, we cannot ignore that much of Mr. Trump's personal response to the pandemic has been insufficient and deceptive and not focused enough clearly on one issue, saving lives. For months, the president belittled the threat of the virus. He only recently acknowledged the gravity of the crisis. I could provide video clips of all this, but I don't want to waste your time. You know it's true. Even after President Trump clearly understood what was going on, too many of the messages he's been delivering from that podium are promises of things that remain far off or maybe won't actually happen. The, the hospital masks that are not yet ready, the, the website he discussed that's just local in the Bay Area, he keeps talking up a medicine it's not even clear will be effective. Hospital ships remain weeks away from arrival in port. Peter Alexander, he's a fine reporter for NBC News, which just lost an audio technician to coronavirus. He just died. And Peter's question would have been easy for any other politician. It was basically, Mr. President, please reassure frightened Americans. Indeed, Vice President Pence did not have a problem handling that question. If President Trump is not capable of leading stably and effectively, he should at least, for his own reputation, for the good of the country, stop making things worse and consider leaving the podium to others. The Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, that applies to President Trump too. We'll be right back. The global coronavirus death toll now more than 11 That's the death toll, more than 11,000. Total cases, more than 266,000 worldwide. The Chinese government showing these images today, and if they're legitimate, they are a sign of hope. Doctors and nurses in Wuhan smiling as they remove their masks as one of the makeshift hospitals in Wuhan closes because they don't have enough patients for that hospital. Of course, we need to remind viewers, anything the Chinese government is putting out there, anything they're claiming should be viewed Skeptically, in Italy, the situation remains dire. 627 deaths in just one day. ICUs pushed beyond capacity. Patients being sent to other parts of the country to get care or, frankly, being sent home to die. And in the U.K., the National Health System, NHS, has asked 65,000 retired nurses and doctors to come back to work and help with the influx of patients. We have reporters joining us now from China and from Italy to discuss. Let's start with CNN's David Culver. He's in uh, Shanghai. And David, for the second day, the Chinese government claims, and I'm emphasizing the word, claims, uh, that there are no new locally transmitted cases, but there are reports of new cases from overseas. 
That's right, Jake. And, and your attribution there is right on. And we've been doing that from the beginning. Now, more than eight weeks in our reporting on this, the numbers coming directly from the Chinese government, the National Health Commission here releases those numbers. And their most recent report suggests that in the past two days, there have been no new locally transmitted cases. However, they're still seeing an increase in cases. Those are imported cases. Their concern, now an external threat as they portray it, travelers coming in from other countries. And we should say that the World Health Organization, they rely heavily on Chinese data and they have not questioned it, while others certainly have. And the Chinese data suggesting that there is a rise in imported cases is consistent with what we're seeing in other parts of this region, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Thailand, and Singapore as well. They are seeing a surge in these imported cases. However, we are also seeing the Chinese continuing to keep forward with these quarantine efforts, especially now for international travelers, where they are putting them directly, in most cases, into government facilities, no matter which country you're coming from. If you're outside of China, that's how they're handling it. And we're also seeing that they're not necessarily easing up on some of these extreme lockdown restrictions, certainly within the epicenter of all of this, Jake, Wuhan, where people now for five plus weeks have been sealed in their homes. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I appreciate the skepticism for anything the Chinese government is telling the world at this point. CNN's Barbie Nadeau is in Rome. The number of deaths in Italy is just heartbreaking. 627 in just one day. And Barbie, the epicenter of this virus has moved from China to Italy how how are the Italians combating this? Well, you know, it is devastating. It's devastating for everyone here under the lockdown. And you may wonder why there are so many deaths. Part of that, of course, is because we have a very large elderly population. The lifestyle here is healthy. People live longer. And you may wonder why we have so many new cases. That's because people aren't adhering to the lockdown. People are still out on the streets. We had a Chinese official from the Red Cross who came through uh, Italy yesterday who said, you're not doing this right. There are too many people out. The public transportation is still working. We're expecting the government to give us even stricter models to follow. And we're extra, we're expecting, you know, they can't do the same kind of uh, lockdown they did in Wuhan, but we're expecting something a lot more serious here, Jake. All right, Barbie, thank you so much and continue to stay safe, please. Coming up, quote, we don't have what we need. The urgent pleas coming from healthcare workers in the United States, one telling us she's feeling scared for the first time in her career. Stay with us. As coronavirus cases continue to rise, New York today is one of many states literally counting hospital beds to gauge capacity, cutting off elective surgeries and procedures to make room for severe coronavirus cases. And that has some doctors and nurses raising red flags about a lack of preparedness and supplies. And as CNN Sarah Seidner reports for us now, some of these medical professionals say what's happening in their hospitals is putting patient care at serious risk. Nurses and doctors from coast to coast are afraid and concerned. I've been a registered nurse for over a decade. Uh, my hospital is in complete chaos and confusion in regards to COVID-19. Do you feel like they were ready for this when it got to the United States? No, absolutely not. They're still scrambling. We just don't have what we need. Are you afraid for yourself and your patients? Well, it's the first time in my entire career that I've ever been afraid, and I've heard other physicians say that they're afraid. They are worried about how their hospitals and government are falling short as the coronavirus sweeps the nation. Experts warn we're not even experiencing the worst of the pandemic yet. 
A lot of hospitals are asking us to keep our mouths quiet. This physician asked us to obscure her face and alter her voice because, she says, she believes she'll be fired for speaking out. We don't have enough staff, we don't have enough protective equipment, and we have too many patients. She works in Georgia. U.S. health officials are now asking doctors and nurses to do things they haven't had to do before. We're asked to reuse things, you know, things that are used for one-time use only. We're asked to use for the entire day, and then we save for the next day. If you're being asked to reuse something over and over, going to different patients, aren't you putting patients and yourself at risk? Absolutely. In Roseville, California, Katherine Kennedy has been a registered nurse for 40 years. We are the front line. And if we go down, you know, we, we're furloughed home, who's going to take care of these patients? They've never talked, but both agree their hospitals and government didn't properly prepare for a pandemic. Some of the hospitals will say, look, we didn't know what this was either. This is new to us. You know, how can you expect us to know what to do, how to prepare? What do you say to that? Well, we were here before with Ebola. We had a protocol and, you know, the various hospitals were ready to utilize that same protocol that they did for Ebola. But the hospital said no, they didn't want to do that. And so then at the last minute, they started scrambling. But Kaiser Permanente, the hospital system Kennedy works for, said the procedure it's using to screen, test, and care for healthcare workers and patients suspected or confirmed to have COVID-19 are aligned with the latest science and guidance from public health authorities. These protocols and personal protective equipment have been reviewed and approved by their infectious disease experts and are in use by the major hospital systems. They said they're committed to ensuring healthcare workers have the right level of protective equipment. I think these guidelines are irresponsible and I think that they're playing with human lives knowingly. You don't believe that it's now okay to use different masks? No. I mean, a bandana is not made for, you know, particles of a virus. It's, it's just a decorative item and maybe to kind of keep pollution out a little bit. But it's not meant to protect from potentially lethal disease. And then there are the fights over testing at some hospitals. Consuelo Vargas is a registered nurse in a Chicago emergency room. She says she and other nurses were exposed to a potential COVID-19 patient at work. But days later, they have not been tested. And they've not been told if the patient has tested positive. So I'm supposed to return to work tomorrow. I don't know if I need to go get swabbed. I don't know if I need to be off until we get the patient's test result back. I'm left wondering what to do. Wondering what to do, and they are on the front lines taking care of patients. The hospital where she works in Cook County did not uh, return our questions, no answers to our questions. Now, to underscore the need for personal protection equipment, I'm standing outside of the nursing center that's had the most number of cluster of deaths from COVID-19 in the country here in Washington. And they told us just today that their supplier for PPEs, personal protection equipment, is running out. They may not be able to give them any in the next couple of weeks. Jake. Powerful reporting from Sarah Seidner in Kirkland, Washington. Thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate it. I want to bring in Debbie Hatmaker. She's the chief nursing officer for the American Nurses Association. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. You you heard in that report uh, nurses and others describing their hospitals in chaos and confusion, uh, testing shortages, staffing shortages, lack of protective equipment. 
Your organization represents nurses in all 50 states. What are you hearing from them? Thank you, Jake. I'm glad to be here. We're hearing from nurses from all over the country, and it is clear that while some hospitals are certainly not well prepared and not communicating as well to their nurses in direct care, there are other hospitals who've relied on a very strong preparedness plan and are communicating well, but it's very very dispersed and very um, different all over the country. What is consistent in what we're hearing all over the country is the lack of uh, personal protective equipment. The shortage there in PPE is obvious everywhere. uh, And of course, certain parts of the country need it uh, in large quantities based on their numbers of patients. We just heard today in the office from a hospital system in Virginia in which uh, the nurse leader said they had several COVID-19 patients and by the end of the weekend, they expected to be completely out of PPE. So while preparedness may be variable across the country uh, and some have done better than others as far as being prepared or communicating their preparation to their nurses, The lack of equipment is consistent. We do not have what we need. And even though we're hearing that supplies are being released, that they're being ramped up in those supplies, we really need more specifics on that. We need to know the exact amount. We need to know exactly when they're going to be released and how the distribution is going to be. And having the federal government help with distribution from a mm-hmm. fairness perspective, is very important. And, and Debbie, let me ask you, uh, the CDC issued these startling guidelines saying that in a pinch, uh, if hospitals, if healthcare providers run out of the special masks uh, that protect people from respiratory infection, uh, they could even use scarves or bandanas. Um, my, as I told you during the break, my mom is a retired nurse. My dad is a retired doctor. Uh, I would not want them using a a bandana or a scarf uh, as a substitute for a mask during a pandemic. Well, and I can tell you nurses don't want to be using bandanas or scarves either. Those those CDC guidelines are only related to a severe crisis situation. And it's really important that we don't get we don't find that going on. And I'm afraid that if we don't really ramp up our performance, our protective equipment, we may find in certain parts of the country that severe a crisis. We don't want to be using, we don't want to be reusing masks, telling people to clean masks, use them the entire shift, use them between patients. That is not good infection control. And we certainly don't want to be have to go to any crisis situation where we're using uh Homemade mask. We certainly saw stories on communities asking for homemade masks and even people making masks from surgical sheets. We don't want to get there. And yet we're very close to that point right now. So President Trump says he's invoking the Defense Protection Act uh, to help deal with this lack of supply uh, of masks, of ventilators. Um, Do you think this act will help quickly enough? to help those on the front lines dealing with more coronavirus cases every day. Are you getting the information you need? You met with the Trump task force on coronavirus this past Wednesday. Um, do you have any idea when the needed ventilators will arrive, uh, when the needed testing equipment will arrive 
You already said you haven't heard any specific dates about PPE. Um, We've not been given specific dates on when things will be shipped, when they will arrive. I think we're hearing similar to what we've heard uh, and the media is hearing as far as we're ramping up um, manufacturing. We're ramping up and looking for opportunities to convert industries into making respirators or PPE. But we don't have the specifics around how quickly can we do that? Should we expect large amounts of equipment coming to us in a few days, a few weeks. And we really need to know that in order to know what kind of measures we have to take now. Debbie Hatmaker, thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you and the nurses do. Thank you. Senators under scrutiny after some well-timed stock sell-offs spark questions of insider trading. What did they know and when? Breaking news, the Pentagon's chief spokesman tweeted moments ago that the U.S. military has airlifted a group of U.S. women's football players from Honduras. They were stuck there after the country closed its borders due to the coronavirus pandemic. Here in Washington, D.C., Senator Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Republican from North Carolina, is now calling for an ethics review of himself after concerns were raised about his sale of up to $1.7 million in stocks last month. Senator Burr sold those stocks just days before the stock market began a downturn over the coronavirus outbreak. Burr claims he only used public news reports to make those sales and not any of the privileged information he routinely gets as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. But at the end of the day, Burr and at least one other senator who had millions in stocks sold those stocks before the market took a major hit while simultaneously reassuring their constituents and the public that everything was fine. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, this all raises legitimate questions about their actions. Up to $1.7 million in stock. That's how much Republican Senator Richard Burr and his wife pulled out of the market on February 13th just before it started crashing, losing 31% in 10 days. At the time of Burr's sell-off, the public did not know the seriousness of the virus. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. But Burr, as the powerful chairman of the Intelligence Committee of Russia probe fame, was getting detailed updates. It is much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we have seen in recent history. Just after Burr sold those stocks, he even told a gathering at the Capitol Hill Club in D.C. the virus could be very bad, according to a recording obtained by NPR. It's probably more akin to the 1918 pandemic. Burr says the NPR report is a tabloid-style hit piece that knowingly and irresponsibly misrepresented his comments. He wants an ethics investigation to prove he did not use inside information to protect his bank account. But conservative pundits who have long thought Burr not loyal enough to the president are pouncing. Otherwise, he must resign from the Senate and face prosecution for insider trading. Former Democratic presidential contender Andrew Yang tweeted, if you hear about a pandemic and your first move is to adjust your stock portfolio, you should probably not be in a job that serves the public interest. Other senators are being scrutinized for big stock dumps. Democrat Dianne Feinstein and Republican Jim Inhofe, but both say their trades were initiated by others and they were not as privy to virus updates. 
I do want to set the record straight. Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler did attend a big virus briefing and tweeted afterward about the work being done to, quote, keep our country safe and healthy. And she and her husband, who is chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, sold hundreds of thousands in stock. She says it was all handled by a third party above board. That I'm only informed of my transactions after they occur, several weeks. So certainly those transactions, okay. at least on my behalf, were a mix of buys and sells, very routine. And the president's assessment of them all? And they said they did nothing wrong. I, I find them, the whole group, very honorable people. To be clear, there is no proof that anyone acted on inside information or broke any laws. But with the whole country facing economic calamity, with normal folks watching their 401ks crumble, the idea is that some people who knew a lot more had these well-timed economic decisions. They benefited immensely and are now just basically saying that's a coincidence. It's raising a lot of eyebrows. Jake? Sure is. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. We'll have all the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern Sunday. Coming up next, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Deborah Burks, will join CNN Live. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.